The Guardian. Hello, hello, hello everyone. We've got such a packed show, I've got to immediately introduce you to our panellists today. You know him as a man who gave you Joanna Lumley down the Nile. But today, he will be revealing stories of chaos and agony. Ladies and gentlemen, Clive Tuller. Next, the woman behind the comedy juggernaut that is Shooting Stars. Titty, titty, bang, bang. And of course, don't forget your toothbrush. But today, she talks about a show that promised stars, but only delivered Davro. It's Lisa Clark. Next up, the man who introduced us to Pineapple Dance Studios and Louis Spence, and he thinks that's a success. How bad can it be with Jonathan Stadlin? And finally, he gave us a league of their own, Mr. and Mrs., but his story tonight will have you crying for his children. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Murray Bolan. Now, I want to start by giving you a picture. It's September 1995, a young man with hopes, dreams, ambitions, a desire to succeed in television. It's the day after his first ITV network show that he's produced. He's come early to the legendary Granada Entertainment offices at his desk, ready to receive the feedback. At 8.30, the phone rings. A lady, her accent, probably South Yorkshire, Rotherham, perhaps Doncaster, I'm not sure. She's elderly. Her voice quaking, fragile, but not because of the infirmities of age, no, but because she is angry. <laughs> you, she says, have ruined my favorite show. And my husband wants to speak to you as well. <laughs> that morning I received quite a lot of phone calls on a similar way because it was the morning after the 18th series debut of The Krypton Factor. I stand before you today as the man who took one of television's most successful shows and wiped it off the map. Thank you. Because some people would say that's a badge of shame. I say that's a badge of honor. Because three years later, I arrived at the BBC and the controller of BBC One told me I had one series to fix a question sport, which had also run for 18 years, or it was off the air. And luckily, because of the enormous cock-up that was The Krypton Factor, and by the way, we're unable to show you clips of that show because so horrific is it that ITV wouldn't let us have them. <laughs> because of that, I learned how to throw the bath order out and not the baby. And that's what this session is about today. You probably all thought you were coming to laugh at some of your friends and colleagues for their enormous cock-ups, but it's really about what we've learned when things go wrong and how often, actually, it's failure that gives us the insight to success.
Okay, let's, we're going we're to kick off. Our panellists are very kindly today decided to come and talk about some of their shows that they think really do stand tall in the canon of disasters. And, and first up, Clive, what, what are you going to bring to the party? Well, I think I've won this session to hound right, because the show I made was truly, I think, the worst TV show ever. Luckily, it's not repeated, it's never really seen. It was Beat the Crusher with Freddie Starr. And uh, I think that's it. I think you don't need to say any more. You know, I, let me do the pitch. What I did okay. was I took... Uh, there's a scene, I don't know if you've, uh, any of you have seen, well, I'm sure lots of you have seen Goldfinger, and there's a scene where a, one of the millionaires doesn't want in, and they shoot him in the head, and then they take him, and they put him in the, in the back of the car, and they crush his car. Odd job, doesn't it? It's all brilliant. Anyway, I recut that. I said, look how sexy it is, really, and I cut it to simply the best, or something really shit like that. And uh, we went in to see uh, James Baker and Elizabeth Murdoch, and to their credit, they both still speak to me. And I said, this is going to be great. We, Mark Lindsay and I had thought it up over quite a few beers. And I said, we thought, what is it that people value the most that they will risk? Their children? No, we can't do that. And their house? No, we can't do that. Will they actually bet their car to win a car? So we then cut this promo together. And I said, what is really good about the show is that it won't be made in a TV studio. It will be made in a shopping centre. It'll be Sky Comes to Town. And it'll be really good. And I don't know, it seemed really good. It'll be a road show and we'll have, and we had a whole list of presenters which started with Jonathan Ross who was in one of his fallow periods again. And, and then it ended with Freddie Starr who was on the bottom. Anyway, we got Freddie. And, uh, and then getting into shopping malls was more difficult than I thought. So the shopping malls we got into were the really, really shit ones where... Oh, I, I can't really comment on the type of people who were in it because I'll just... I'll say I was something. watching the Jeremy Kyle show this yes, morning. There, there you go. So, yes, a lot of people who were on Jeremy Kyle were in the shopping centre and the main shops were the kind of Clinton remainder card shops and yeah. stuff like that. And also, there was no way of keeping the audience, so... We'd start it on a big finale, and I would be—I was on the floor. Mark was in the trucks, and I would be going, "Crusher, crusher, crusher!" And then, after about 20 minutes, people wanted they, the Clinton remainder card store was doing a sale, and everyone drifted away. So, as you watch the show, literally all you'll hear is me going, "Crusher, crusher, crusher!" No, no, no look, look, look! I know this is fast becoming a rather sad a therapy, and <laughs> even worse, a kind of in some ways. There's nothing positive about that, is there? What was... We, don't, we, went, we didn't do a pilot. That was one of the first things, probably the mistake. We went straight to a series. <laughs> ten ten episodes. Out. Week one would happen. Melinda Messenger was the, was the co-host. She had a little segment called Babies Win Prizes. That was the classy bit of the show. And um, Freddie came and like, we did the show. We did the rehearsals. Week one. Week two he came and he went... What happens this week? I said, well, it, it's a format. We, you know, we do the same as we do. Like, what, you do the same every week? We crush a car every week? I said, yes, yeah. And there it is. Oh, that sounds not very good, does it? And, it's a, and the, he should have worked in commission. But basically, they won. Uh, basically, they, they competed to win a new Hyundai, Korea's top car at the time. And 
Mark and I uh, were on location in Kefili or some glamorous place, and by the time we were making episode five or six, we were already on air, and uh, we were lying. I was in bed in, a, in one of those hotel rooms where literally I could just tap and talk to Mark through the through the wall, <laughs> and Paxman was just winding up Newsnight. And he went, uh, no, I've just got the papers, uh, in disaster, famine, independent. And the Daily Star, the comedian Freddie Starr, appears to have eaten someone's car. And uh, that was the front page of the Daily Star. We thought, oh, it's a big hit. And then we looked at the page. The woman whose car we'd crushed, it had been a present from her dead sister who'd recently died of cancer. It couldn't get any worse. <laughs> And, and, and so they you did a lot we, of research. We did a lot of research. All in all, right, I'm going I'm to stop you now because, quite frankly, you're, you're obviously scarred by this. <laughs> Is there anything you learned from this debacle? I think we were ahead of our time. I think it was a green show. <laughs> I saw Stuart Murphy on the way in. He said it was one of his favourite shows. And he's, I think we, we look in... Well, obviously, I don't own the format anymore because I've left Tiger Aspect and Endemol. But and, Tim Hinks uh, will be pitching that. Tim Hinks will be pitching it, will, you know, be. as we speak. Okay, so, so moving on, Lisa, um, what show have you decided to bring to this Well, after that, I think mine deserves a BAFTA, frankly. <laughs> um, mine was a very, very simple concept. You get A-list stars doing impressions. But we wanted to give a little twist. And the twist was these are stars you wouldn't expect to be seen doing impressions, doing impressions. The flaw being that they actually couldn't do impressions. <laughs> So, whereas we started with an A-list cast, literally they dropped like flies. So we ended up, we had Jerry Hall doing Katie Price. It was a bit of television. And then, so we ended up with people we knew could do impressions, but having a whole show full of those sorts of people, it just sort of was so saccharine. And the sketches, to be fair to the show, the sketch, some of the sketches were really well written. Some of them were really well acted slash impressioned, but put them all together, and it was... Oh, I well, tried to watch it back for this session, and I had to stop the tape. Because we got to the... close to the end of the barrel, where we'd started with Ronnie Ancona, and I actually, to my credit, told Ronnie not to do it, because I knew the way the show was going. So whereas we started with John Thompson <laughs> and Ronnie Ancona... They, they could do it, and then we had Tim Healy and what Paul... What you say? Save yourself, I'm, I'm going down with the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we had uh, uh, Tim Healy and Paul Daniels doing an older Anton Deck, doing I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Uh, and lots and lots of other gems. But together, as I say, together, if you put that show on Saturday Night Takeaway now, you put that sketch on there, you think, oh, it's quite kitsch, that's funny. But put a whole hour of it... And the ending featured six different celebrities um, being Tom Jones, including David Guest. <laughs> None of them could sing. And the end, we ran out of time in the studio, the was just horrendous. And we somehow had to piece it okay, together I, in post. I, I, I can see now. It's you, upsetting you, 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 me. It is upsetting you, actually. Yeah, it is I, can, I can see that. It was a laugh. Sure. <laughs> I, I think we might. I think we might need some help later from some uh, trained medical staff for the way this is going. Jonathan, w what have you brought to us? Uh, well, this is a show that I didn't actually make. Uh, I developed, uh, and I think 
that, that makes me more responsible rather than less responsible. Um, and the beginning of this program was uh, inauspicious. My MD at the time said, there's this person I'd really like you to meet. And I walked into the office, and there was sitting this woman who looked not dissimilar at all to Jennifer Lopez. And um, I found her really attractive. And then he said, do you mind just coming out of the room? I came out of the room, he said, that woman has a penis. And... Um, I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, she's, she's, she's a transsexual. And I said, okay, that's really interesting. And I would consider myself really straight. Like, I've kissed one man with no tongues on a rugby tour once yeah. as a joke. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to go there. But that's as far as it's gone. And I really did find her attractive. And I didn't actually stop finding her attractive after I realised that she had a penis. So that, I thought... That I was like, this is interesting. This, we could do a really interesting show about this and sort of look at sexuality in a really interesting way. And what it ended up as is a show called There's Something About Miriam. Um, and the, the idea was that six men would go out to this island to try and win the hand of this woman, but they didn't know that she was a man. And that isn't actually how it was developed, and how it was developed was something I think could have been quite interesting, and it got made into a sort of ha-ha look at them. He's dry-humping a woman who's got a penis and he doesn't realise. Yeah. And, and that, that wasn't what it... I don't think... We could have done it in a slightly different way, yeah. So I feel... Yeah. yeah, I think that's a charitable interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my show was ages ago, and uh, it was called Club X, and I produced it with Charlie Parsons. And it was meant to be one of Channel 4's big kind of innovative new shows, and uh, they cancelled a really successful, fantastic show just before it to make way for it and pay for it called Network 7. So there was huge pressure on it to be really brilliant. And um, it went out for two hours live. It was an arts show on Wednesday nights on Channel 4 for 16 weeks. I couldn't really tell you what the idea was. It was about the arts. And um, it, was, it was shit. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I know it was rubbish because every time they do a, um, a top 100 worst programs ever made, it's always in the top 10. And um, the problem with it was I didn't just produce it, I presented it as well. So, uh, and it was just a litany of disasters from start to finish. You know, 32 hours of utter shite. I mean, so. it, it, I mean, that's one thing you can take comfort from. At least you weren't in There's Something About Miriam. I know, but what's interesting is when we were asked to go on this panel, I didn't know, I didn't know which one to choose. There was like a... <laughs> and, um, and my cousin said, oh, you know, if you want to be prime minister... Not I want to be prime minister. If you want to be prime minister, you have to have a 10-year window of sort of like goodness, good behaviour. And I look back over the last 10 years, and it's, it's, it's a wasteland of sort of TV disasters. It's really... It's, it's bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good lad. You're good lad. Your mother loves you. I don't know how much it taught me necessarily. I mean, it was, uh, the thing was, it was way beyond our technical expertise, I think. The idea was you went from club to club every week, a different club, and most of the clubs weren't set up for hosting, hosting what was a really complicated live broadcast, and they didn't even pro have the proper kind of electricity to, to power it. So, um, it, the, I don't know if you noticed, there were some clips there from the first show. It went out without sound. And uh, on the second show, <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the second show, uh, there was such... A, people realised it was a total car crash. 
So hundreds and hundreds of people turned up just to see it go wrong. And um, there was a run on the green room bar, and it shorted the electrics in the club, so the whole program fell off air. And, uh, and then by about program three or four, I, we made the sort of schoolboy error of not hiring enough floor managers. And um, so there was one floor manager, and she couldn't queue everything in time, so I started having to queue all the items that were taking place. And um, it, we eventually got left behind. So there were people going to air without realizing they were on television. And about <laughs> halfway through, when the whole, and all the guests were getting drunk, nobody was making sense, nobody could hear what was happening. At one point, I appeared talking to a man who was doing nice sculpture. And I was heartily sick of the whole fucking thing at that point. And so I was saying to him, look, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is ridiculous. I mean, Charlie Parsons is a madman. And I'm just pouring out my worries to this man without realizing I was on television. <laughs> and, uh, and he was just making an ice sculpture. And, uh, and then the best bit, the best bit of all was at the end of this two-hour farrago, everybody was pissed. I was just thinking, counting down the seconds till the thing went off air. And I had to propose a toast to futurism, uh, which is this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't we matter what it was. It. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was doing this toast to futurism, and as I, the floor manager was counting me down, this other guy, who was totally pissed, got up and took an air pistol out of his jacket, and he shot my co-host in the face with it. <laughs> <laughs> and all you saw me doing at the end of the show was going, for fuck's sake, I have fucking had it with this. That was it. Well, I... Uh, so it was a disaster. I'll tell you, actually, um, I'll tell you what I learned out of this. I was obviously, I felt crucified because I was the face of this whole rubbish. But Charlie Parsons, in the middle of all of this, absolutely loved it. There was not a moment when he regretted what he was doing. He completely believed in it. And if I was to take anything away from that, it was, yeah. if you're going to do a show, really believe in it. And it really, you know, it's interesting because he, you know, the word was actually the second series of Club X that was recommissioned. A lot what he, of what he learned in terms of, yeah, just having lots of guts came from that. That's the, that's first, the, that's the first bit of take out. Yeah. We finally got a bit of take out. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's what I was trying to... Support for this podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy, it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Well, hopefully we'll be getting some more take-up because not only have our panellists given their souls, but we asked other people in the industry uh, to talk about some of their failures and, and, and the We've got some VTs. And the first up is Nick Mather. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this show. Nick's talking about a show called Don't Scare the Hair. Hello, Edinburgh. My name is Nick Mather. Uh, and I am managing director of Remarkable. The worst TV show I've ever made and ever hoped to make was Don't Scare the Hair for BBC One. I honestly think that we, we ran away with ourselves and got very, very carried away with what we were doing and we became delighted by the notion of this fucking hair. 
We'd all sat in the room going, oh, isn't he cute? Isn't he lovely? Uh, people really love this guy with his little floppy ears and his little, you know, whiskers. I remember when he first came into the studio, we were like, God, this guy's really cute. Everyone's going to absolutely bloody love him. People absolutely hated the hair. It was fucking <laughs> extraordinary. Just absolutely, made people angry. It really, people got angry at him. When it started doing badly, it was quite upsetting. It was quite hard to kind of get up in the morning, keep going to work, sort of thinking, God, do you know, I've worked really, really, really hard on this show and it's just an absolute disaster. And not only disaster, it's sort of like laughable. So it's not very pleasant when a show you've, 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 you've put a lot of work into starts to fail quite dismally, particularly in a very, very public place like Saturday Night, BBC One, and you're starting to think to yourself, how is it my life would be better if I didn't have a commission on Saturday Night, BBC One? Um, and that feels like quite a strange feeling. So you think, God, that's what I'm, my whole career is sort of like directed towards getting big commissions like that. And then when it starts going down the toilet, you think, God, I really, really, really wish I didn't have a, a show on Saturday night on BBC One. What I would do not to have a show on Saturday night on BBC One right about now. And it'd be even better if that show wasn't Don't Scare the Hair. <laughs> I mean, Clive, we're, we've all been in that sort of development thing with something, and, and, you're in, and then you're in production, and kind of everyone thinks it's great, and really, it's not working out, is it? What was great about Scare the Hair as well was that it was in all the promos, and then obviously when they tried to kind of wipe the history of it, the ears and things were still in some of the promos, like weeks <laughs> later, like just torturing. I think Carl, are you here, Carl? He's gone. Carl commissioned it. Good luck with that, Indy. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's a joke. Um, <laughs> Strange comment. Yeah, no, you do get carried away with it. I mean, it's very easy to get carried away with ideas. What you hope is that somewhere along the line there's a check and balance, so, you know, that somebody will say, really, you're going to crush a car with Freddie Starr? I mean, I remember when... Yeah, let's not go back to Freddie Starr. No, 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 but you just don't... You, know, you, you just hope that somewhere along the line someone's going to say, go, really? Is it like, I mean, yeah. like, when... There was a, in one of the episodes of, of um, I'm using this as a carthosis, that um, somebody had to bet their surfboards and then we basically, if they lost, which they always lost, there was no, basically no one ever won on, on Beat the Grass, and that, the, that we would then cut up the surfboards with a chainsaw. And I remember we gave Freddie a chainsaw and he went, no one's ever given me a chainsaw before. And he kind of staggered towards the, with the cameraman and everyone kind of pulled away in kind of fear. I think that's, those are the things we should have learned somewhere. Yeah, that, that one might have been a clue at that yeah. moment. Yeah. I think he really, really likes Beat the Crash. I think he does. I think he does. What's interesting about that, when, when he said, I wish I hadn't had that commission... Uh, and you, if, you, if something goes wrong, you feel so absolutely shit about yourself and lose all your confidence and think, it's, what, I'm never going to work again and why would anyone commission me? And then in that time, I start thinking about alternative careers and I genuinely go down the road of I'm going to sell second-hand cars and I start <laughs> to think about the cars, I think about what I'd do the write-up for the eBay and then inside, <laughs> I start to feel better and I think, actually, I've got an escape route, it's OK. And it's, it, it, it's, it's two sides of a coin that's re, it's really difficult. Yeah, but, but to be fair, you'd be selling a Mercedes with a, with a bloody, uh, you know, Skoda engine, wouldn't you, after that show? 
Well, that obviously didn't work as a joke. <laughs> That's, well, uh, right, next clip, get me out of here, quick. I mean, th we're now going to show a, a clip from a show that um, actually, as a result, the ITV share price went down, apparently. Um, the, the FTSE 100, they actually said, because of the quality of this particular show. This is Jim Allen talking about celebrity wrestling. Hello, I'm Jim Allen, I'm from RDF, and the worst programme that I ever made by some distance was Celebrity Wrestling for ITV. No one came to it from the start. It started with a rating of 2.4 million. Uh, Doctor Who got 8 million. On the second week, we went down to 2.1 million. Doctor Who brought back the Daleks, they got 10 million, and I got a call from ITV saying, we're gonna move Celebrity Wrestling slightly later in the schedule. I said, oh, okay, what time Saturday night? They went, no, Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. And you know, the sad truth of it is, even at 10 o'clock when I hoped that we might have a revival, we were beaten by farming today. Often shows that do really badly are just rejected on billings, on concept, on ideas. I know I'll be probably jeered about it, but I actually think, and I know I'm, I'm quite nervous of saying this, I thought celebrity wrestling was well executed and well made. As much energy went into trying to get that program right as let's say I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And for everyone who's ever made a flop, they'll probably say they've done some of their best work in trying to get it right. So I think the industry should be, should be better at judging when something has been rejected as an idea and when something has been rejected because of its execution. There are two different things. Most programmes that flop, people don't come to in the first place. It doesn't necessarily mean it's made badly. People might say to you, though, celebrity wrestling, shit idea, shit execution. I, I, just, I think generally think people are very forgiving of making bad... I mean, and they are sophisticated enough to be able to tell the difference between a bad idea and something that's badly made. So, you know, the, the, in my, my experience, when you've made a show that didn't work as well, if people feel you've really tried and you've really worked hard on it, they're reasonably okay with that. I mean, nobody wants a failure, but... Yeah, yeah. but that's the point. If you don't try, you'll never know. And in television, you can, there's, no, there's no rule book. Nobody knows. You can't say, that's definitely going to be a hit and that isn't. All you've got to do is go out there and try and really, like Jim was saying, work hard, do it the best you can do. Some will work, some won't. But isn't it quite important, though, to define what a failure is? And I think, those, I think there are four things to what... Maybe this is completely a failure in itself. But um, I think there are four things. One is, is it a good idea or a bad idea? The second thing is, what is the process like of making it, like with the commissioner, with your production team? Is that an enjoyable thing? Do you get up in the morning and think, I want to go into work or not? I think thirdly, is the end result what you all signed up to? Like, if you did beat the crusher, did it end up like goats in Afghanistan or something completely different? And lastly, what's the audience reaction to it? And the audience reaction, as Kevin Spacey was saying last night, isn't just audience figures, it's is there a core audience or group that really like it and become fans of it? And by that measure, I think a lot of the things we're talking about aren't necessarily failures because it did have one or two of those things that maybe didn't have all. Yours had none. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's okay. Well, I mean, you, you made Celebrity Boxing, which was in a similar territory, yeah. but th th a big success. Yeah. I didn't watch Celebrity Wrestling, but I think it probably came, it came after boxing, didn't it? And I think that's, 
if you try and do something... I mean, the celebrity boxing match was a big hit on BBC Two and really, really well cast, which goes back to the All-Star Impression show that wasn't well cast. We had Ricky Gervais versus Grant Bovey, and they really, really trained, and they really put everything into it, and it was a sodding, exciting programme yeah. to make and be a part of. I didn't really know whether... I mean, having Ricky Gervais did certainly put it up on the scale of whether it was going to work or not, but as I say, it was real, and they meant it. They were punching each other's lights out. But, but coming back to that point earlier about learning and how do you cope with failure, um, uh, we, we, we've got a clip now from uh, Marcus Child, who's a motivational speaker. He's been doing some work with uh, ITV senior management. He, he just talks about how you cope with failure. Hello, beautiful TV people. I'm about to explain the psychological journey we all go through when disaster happens. OK, for months you've worked on a show. You pitched, you nurtured, you loved. But the ultimate nightmare, it hasn't worked. Catastrophe. Welcome to stage one, shock. The blood drains from your face. Your life is over. Very quickly, stage two, denial. The rating's wrong. I'm reading it wrong. It's another channel. Does it include the plus one? They've sent the wrong figures. But there's no escaping. That barb number taunting you is right. So what do you do? It's a natural human response. Blame others. It was the slot. I blame David Berg and the losers in marketing. It was a shite trail. But eventually, creeping doubt sets in, which means you start to blame yourself. I've been found out. I'm a terrible TV producer. What was I thinking? And this is where danger lurks, because at the next stage, you'll become immobilised. Here, your confidence is at its most shaken. If you let it, this period of self-doubt could be your downfall. But take heart. This journey could also be the making of you. The trick is, don't stay here for long. Feel the pain and get out of the wallowing mire. Shoulders back, head high and into acceptance. So, you cock this one up. No one died. It's not the end of the world. I haven't failed. I've learned stuff. It's time to start moving on. New horizons beckon. Ideas start fizzing and you're bristling to pitch again. So this is my wisdom for you, lovely TV people. This journey can either weaken you or strengthen you. Stand tall and proudly say, I have made the worst TV ever and I learned from it. Yeah. I am not getting us to do that. Well, yes, of course you can, Lisa. <laughs> Go to the he's, pub. He's turned ITV around, that bloke. That's... Yeah, I, I, just I thought that was reasonably accurate, yeah. actually. Yeah. You can do that. I mean, you can go to the pub, have a pint, and move on. Well, all in yeah. one, one you don't have drink. To go through all. Imagine going at home and charting. I'm in the acceptance stage, I'm in the moving on stage. I don't think you're necessarily... Jim Allen was in the denial stage. He still managed yeah. to put in the fact that we're up against Doctor Who and the Daleks. He just actually he told the anecdote, but actually managed to tell us it was 8.2, 10 million, and, you know... Yeah, yeah it wasn't his fault. I actually miss all those stages of, like, denial, blame. I go straight to self-doubt and immobilisation. <laughs> and then I have to think, oh, like he said, no-one's died. And I start to think, I, look, I, look, I go up, wake up in the morning, people are going to work, I think the world's sort of moving on. But still, I think, this has been an utter disaster and I'll never work again. 
The th I think the, the, the thing that was most extraordinary, again, looking back at um, Club X, was with, with Charlie Parsons, is he would never acknowledge a mistake. Yeah. Absolutely wouldn't countenance something being bad, or that there was something wrong with it. He, I know, I thought it was incredible, if you think about it, an amazing coping mechanism. There was no danger he was ever going to have self-doubt about anything. He absolutely just wouldn't acknowledge it. And that has a big impact on And I think, it's, you know, it's a really important thing, that, because those programs can kill you. You know, the, you yeah. absolutely can lose all your kind of creative confidence out of, out of things like that. Well, well, let's look at our next, our next uh, uh, title is Jim Sayer from Maverick, and he's talking about a show called Property Chain. The idea of the property chain was to follow simultaneously every single link in a property chain from the moment that people found houses right the way through to the moment uh, that they hopefully moved in. It was a really clever idea and nobody had ever filmed a full property chain from start to finish um, and it turns out there was a very good reason for that um, because it's pretty much impossible. I think no one can be successful all the time. And I think that's really important. And I think you have to be comfortable with the fact that if you want to do amazing work, sometimes you have to accept that it'll go amazingly badly wrong. The, the people I most admire in television are the people who, who are comfortable with taking risk and knowing that part of building a body of good work or great work is that there'll be some absolute turkeys in there too. In order to really succeed and to really do something extraordinary, you need to go beyond what your mind thinks is possible and what your mind thinks is capable, and that's, that's risk-taking. And provided that it's creative risk rather than personal risk or health and safety risk, I think that's a pretty good thing. I once sent a blind director to make a film about a blind contributor. And in hindsight, if you'll pardon the pun, that was quite a lot of risk. Aww. Well, I think well, it's interesting that... Um, about that in, in, the, in, the, in the risk thing is um, really all of us, not just here, everyone, their next show should definitely be able to be their worst show or their best show. And if it isn't possible to be one of those things, it's going to be something quite mediocre. And as an indie, you have a problem, which is you go to a broadcaster and they're shitting themselves about ratings or whatever it is, and they think if we get below 3 million, we get 2.8, then you know, that's just about acceptable. But if you, I think you can only succeed as much as you're willing to fail, I think as Lisa said in her article. So if that's 3 million and that's 2.8, that means you can probably succeed that much above it. So you're pitching into this window of sameness, derivativeness, mediocrity, and it's really, really boring. And to try and do something outside that is bloody difficult. And so you have to accept that if you try and do something like that, it's going to be either really bad or really good. But I'd much rather be in that situation than making... Bargain Hunt Series 75, or if someone's making that show, it's a good show. But, you know, what, what I mean, it, it's that sort of sameness, I think that's not what we got into TV for. Yeah. Would everyone agree? Well, yeah, because you make a mark, don't you? If you do something that's... If you take risks like that, you've got that, that percentage chance of doing something that will go down, that will be remembered as a fantastic programme, as well as doing the ones that are remembered as not-so-good programmes. But... You've got, you've got to take the risk. You have to, otherwise, yeah, like you, I, I don't want to make shows that are bland and sanguine. I want to, want to push the envelope, try something new. It's interesting, because um, my husband wrote this theme music for Strictly Come Dancing, and when um, I asked him what he was doing, he said, oh, I'm doing this new show for the BBC, so they're bringing back Come Dancing. I said, oh, for God's sake, that's never going to work. Really? Oops. 
<laughs> Luckily, well, it did. You know that Simon Cowell thing where um, he pitched Britain's Got Talent, was it? Yes. I saw that on the, on the, the story of the talent show. And um, ITV said, we'll commission a pilot, and then didn't do it. And then it only they took it back once he'd taken it to America and brought it back here. And if, as a commissioner, you can't spot that Britain's Got Talent is going to do well, then that just gives an example of how much you have to push to try and get something slightly different away. If he can't do it, then, you know... That's because nobody knows, because you can't... You, there's, no, there's no rules. Nobody knows really what's going to be a hit. Well, 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 perhaps our next clip, in development, they should have realised... Because this is uh, Tim Harcourt talking about Murder Most Famous. Each show built to an unintentionally hilarious moment where each of the celebrities would read a passage from the piece of crime fiction that they were writing. I think there was a rule in TV for a while that if a celebrity really passionately wanted to do a skill or learn a skill, that would instantly translate into TV. In this instance, all the celebrities genuinely did want to write a piece of crime fiction or you know, everyone thinks they've got a novel in them and celebrities are no different. But that did not translate into to, to good TV for a number of reasons. One, I just don't think that writing and TV are a great combination. And two, they were truly appalling writers on the whole. Um, Sherry Hewson, who won, did have a book published. I never saw it in the shops. I realised very quickly in development that it was going to be terrible because... I don't think I've ever spent more time developing one show than I spent developing this. The BBC wanted us literally to, you know, to step through a running order of every single minute, and it required so many moments and so much formatting, you just knew it was an absolute dead duck in the water. That dead duck moment. <laughs> You've been there, Clive? Yeah, but I think what Lisa was saying is that it's just that... Even in development, you don't know when something's a good idea or a bad idea necessarily until it starts to come to it. I remember one of the development teams at Tiger many years ago, somebody came up with My New Best Friend, and I was thinking, I really thought that is... I was fairly sure that was not going to work. And Mark Wooten made it unmissable. You know, he just... Because it was like... It didn't seem to have... To make any sense, but it was, you know, it was the opposite of Beat the Crusher, which we thought was going to be a huge hit. <laughs> that it was just, you just don't know. And sometimes what's frustrating about making television or developing or in commissioning is, is that quite often things happen by accident. You know, like we've all been in meetings and people say, oh, what's the next Top Gear? And you feel like Top Gear is happened, you know, it's, it's sort of grown generically into the show that it, that it is today. And that's why it's a hit. And you can't then suddenly recreate that recipe and make something else again. Yes, it was interesting what, what he was talking about there, about trends. You know, there's a feeling that if you put a celebrity is feeling passionate about something, and I think we've all had that moment when commissioners, or, or we all think, let's follow down that trend. You get kind of lost in a, in a way, don't you, with the it, it, it's, I've done development for 10 years, and most of the worst mistakes I made were doing development, which I think taught me quite a lot. But we've all been in a situation, you're in a room, you're brainstorming, no one's coming up with any good ideas. It's all really shit. And at the end, someone says, oh, why don't we do X, Y, Z? And suddenly it's like, okay, well, it's, we're all getting out of this meeting. That's quite good. And you've got a meeting tomorrow with the commissioner. So you go to the commissioner and then suddenly it's commissioned and then you're in really deep shit because you sort of know it's bad. And I used to sit there thinking, it's fine, I don't have to make this. I said, hand it over to someone else. And I used to laugh when I hand some of these things over thinking, some fucker's got to go and make this. And that is really bad. That is like... 
And, you know, that Miriam thing came out of that, of not being across that process from development to production. And one of the ones we came up, I've had some absolutely disastrous development things. One was having to, someone asked me to pitch to Trevor McDonald, a show called Trevor McDonald's Slave Ship, where he went to Africa and picked up lots of slaves and said, that was, I mean, if that, imagine if that had got made. It was just, it was just really bad. And then... Uh, the, uh, uh, someone said, if, um, for when I was a runner, the first development thing is said, if you come up with an idea tomorrow that we can pitch to this channel, we'll give you a job as a researcher rather than an assistant. And one of the ideas I came up with was called um, Double Entry, which was um, you gave a camera to a group of boys and a camera to a group of girls, and they each had to make an erotic film for a double entry into the Cannes Porn Festival. And I thought this is interesting about what constitutes an erotic narrative, all this kind of stuff. And they sold to the Playboy channel and made porn, basically. And <laughs> there is such a disconnect between what you develop to what yeah. actually happens. You can't sit there with your granny and go, oh, yeah, I made this. You, you, you can just go and hide because you're a dumb development. Notice your, your name's not on the credits, you just disappear. But some poor bastard's got to go and do it. But that's where I think you come back, that you should only, only ever pitch stuff you really, truly believe in. It's different because you handed your stuff over. But I've heard loads of commissioners say, and I, when I was a commissioner, people would come in with these ideas, say, do you like that? And you go, no, not really. They go, OK, never mind. Do you like this? You go, no, not really. Do you like this? And it's like, come on, pitch one thing you really believe in, you want to make, and you passionately think is going to work, rather than just sort of sifting through one-line ideas and waiting to see if a commissioner's eyes flicker and there's always something yeah. there, quickly. Yeah. It's easier said than done. I flew... We, we had an, an agent in L.A. who used to say that, just pitch one idea. So we flew all the way to L.A. We got five seconds into the pitch, and we got, I've got something similar. And our agent went, we leave, and we, we got up and left. And I said, really, we've flown all this way. We can't try something else? You know, I mean, like... To be fair, if I'd gone to L.A., I'm talking about going to, like, TV Centre. If I'd gone to L.A., I probably would have had some other things in my bag. If I'm going to TV yeah. Centre, it's yeah. just awful the you, one. Clark, yeah. <laughs> But the bottom line is that that is the only guarantee, I completely agree with you, the only guarantee you have against making something that's rubbish is you completely 100% love it and want yep. to make it and yeah. think it's great. I also think when I was working in development, because your job was on the line, there, you had targets to meet, what you wanted to do above all else was get a commission. It doesn't matter what it is, just get a commission to get your numbers. And now when you're running your own thing or you're having to make it yourself, or I have to make it myself, I'm doing what Lisa's doing. I'll go in one thing that I absolutely love, that I'll go to bed thinking about, wake up thinking about, and that's the thing I want to do. And that is, that is completely different because you're not trying to get a commission, and also you're trying to get a commissioner who you feel is going to be your partner in this because you have a shared sensibility because you have to do it together. So you're not just trying to get a commission, you're trying to find someone, can we go on this journey together? And that is a completely different thing to saying, oh, we can sell this to five different things to try and get it away. OK, we've got... Our, our next clip, uh, actually, is, is Andy Brierton, who, who works in, in development. But he, his example is talking about that, that moment when you're in production or something and you realise you're kind of out of your depth. Hi, my name's Andy Brierton. I work in development at Tiger Aspect, and one of the worst shows I ever worked on was Here Comes the Sun for BBC One. I learned a lot of lessons from Here Comes the Sun. Uh, one is that I think I was probably in a position that I hadn't quite earned in TV yet, and I think a lot of people in TV always want to progress, and actually sometimes you should just learn your trade and then move up. It's just going to mean things are far less stressful going forwards. It is horrible making a a bad show but I think one of the things I realized is they do make for some of the best stories 
So they're always worth doing for that alone. That's true. <laughs> yes. We're running out of time, but we've got a couple more clips. And because people have offered them their souls to us, I think, I think we should see them. So, so, them. They're not here. They couldn't be bothered well, to turn up. They might be. They might be here, actually. Is Liz Warner in the room? Oh, well, let's all have a laugh at Liz, then. Um, this is uh, Liz Warner talking about outrageous wasters. Hello, Edinburgh. I'm Liz Warner of Betty, and one of the worst shows that we've ever made is definitely Outrageous Wasters for BBC Three. We took people who were incredibly profligate and wasteful and took them to a field in West Wales and um, tried to turn them in two weeks into um, eco-warriors. We were commissioned as one of those, I call them sort of shotgun commissions. It was a shotgun to meet the needs of the schedule. So it was like... Here's a commission, you think, marvellous, and then it's like, now can you deliver it in nine weeks flat? Um, and so we sort of, it, it was one of those where you were running and you were realising it was wrong while you were, it's sort of a bit like skidding in a car, and you just think you've got to go into the skid and just go with it. No one thanks you for meeting an eight o'clock Tuesday night for four weeks problem in the schedule, but they, do, they don't remember that but they do definitely remember if you've made something really uh, rubbish. It leads to stress, it leads to pain, but also I'm not sure it leads to returning work because no one goes, that's amazing, you've made that in four weeks. They just go, that shit. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a very good point, isn't it? When sometimes you've got to say no to a commission, which is sort of kind of the point you were making, really. Do you know, people talk about... I think something really weird is going on if you're in the position where you're having to say no to a commission because somebody's obviously asking you to do something that they shouldn't be asking you to do. So you should, I would have thought, be having a more open conversation about that, about if you do something in a certain way, it won't be good. But that's a discussion. So the points where you're really forced into a position where you're saying, I don't want to make the show for you are really, really rare, and they should be, because you shouldn't really get to that point. Yeah. I, I think we, we're going to... Um, we, we're closing on time, but one of the things I thought we should do, given our panellists here have been so brave, is there's one thing saying my show's really bad, but really, what's the worst show of all time? And uh, we thought we'd like to do some audience interaction, simply on a show of hands, our... Our four panellists here have all brought forward a show. They've talked, sometimes in far too much detail, Clive, about those shows. And we thought on a show of hands, we'd like to know which one of these four ideas is possibly the worst idea you've ever heard. And then we can crown them for creating the worst show. We're all quite happy about that, aren't we? Totally. So, um, um, well, you could all do the one-line pitch. Actually, let's, let's do that. Clive, your one-line pitch for Beat the Crusher. And, and tries to crush your car. <laughs> OK. Lisa Clark. Stars you wouldn't expect doing impressions actually doing the impressions. Okay, Jonathan? You've just dry humped a woman, but she's actually a man. How do you feel? And <laughs> <laughs> um, Murray Bowler? Just toilet. Absolute <laughs> toilet. 
Okay, on a simple show of hands, Clive Toller. Okay. That's quite a lot, thank you. Lisa Clark. Oh, you pe people, that's going to that's gonna come back. Jonathan. Oh, it's close. Oh, God, that is close. Murray Bowman. <laughs> that's close as well, but I think, I think Tuller just shades it. Congratulations, Clive, you've officially made. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I think it takes a very brave person to come up here and talk so openly about failure. I'd like to thank all our um, uh, people who, who came onto the VT, but also I'd really like to thank our panel today who have been absolutely. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace. When you need to know what's in the news, you turn to The Guardian. When you want to create something newsworthy, you turn to Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own professional website for your small business, online store, professional portfolio, or blog. Getting started takes only seconds. Just go to squarespace.com, and to support this podcast, use the offer code GUARDIAN to take 10% off.